Um, and also for those of you who couldn't like catch all the water from the fire hose of Levinson's presentation, there's a PDF of the slides up on my Twitter account. So just Steve underscore Rungi on Twitter. Um, and there's a link to download that file from Google Drive. Um, also, I'm gonna be talking about some resources today, some screenshots out of those resources. Someone had tweeted, uh, there's some resources from Logos Bible so that are sold through Logos Bible software that are also, I think it's one of the tweets today, I retweeted it, so it's the Greek Verb Revisited book, the Discourse Grammar, and then the databases that we'll be taking a look at some today um, are available in a collection. And that ends my commercial. I just, yeah, I just work there, I don't sell things. Um, let's see, you should have a handout, right? Great. Um, what we're gonna be talking about today is very complicated. Um, and so in that sense, that, that's why it's been so difficult to explain. And it's not that it's, it requires brain surgery or it, for you to be a brain surgeon. It's just that there are a number of different factors like contextual criticism. We learned in, in exegesis that you have all these competing things. Is it the earliest? Is it the, uh, the hardest reading? Is it the most... Uh, is it geographically widespread? Is it, and then you know, the kind of the final capstone to that is which, which explanation best accounts for all of the rest of the data that we have. Information structure analysis, uh, or talking about constituent order, constituents meaning words, phrases, clauses, because it's not just about words, it's about the, the group of words and they're gonna kind of travel together if they're moved around. Um, so, the challenge with information structure is, is keeping all of the, it's kind of like you're keeping four or five different plates spinning at once. Um, and when I first started studying this with Dr. Levinson, I would send him questions and I felt like he was just changing the rules all the time. Oh, well, there's this other thing. And it's like, yeah, I was like, uh, yeah, just when am I gonna like know enough that it's not, that I'm just wrong again. Um, and so we're gonna be working through some actual texts instead of just looking at things in isolation. Um, and hopefully that can help you be a little bit less intimidated. But the bottom line is you're not gonna be able to go home. You know, it's like the, the Mythbusters thing. Don't try this at home. Uh, you can, um, but some of the, again, you're gonna end up backed into a corner. There, there are places and passages that are just gonna remain ambiguous that you could make a good case either way, but at least exegetically, you can know what those principles are. Um, but that's why we, uh, both Levinson and I have developed databases that you can interact with just like you would with a commentary that you can go to specialist knowledge, you can disagree with them and say they're crazy, whatever, but it's still there to interact with. So historically, we've got different approaches in New Testament studies. Um, you have intuitive observations from the traditional grammarians or Mike Aubrey referred to them as the dead grammarians. That's kind of our, uh, you know, um, respectful reference to the, the earlier grammarians, Robertson, Bloss, and uh, when I was pitching Dan Wallace about writing the forward for the discourse grammar, I told him that I, out of respect, I, I place him among the dead grammarians, uh, which he, he took well. Uh, <laughs> so, at any rate, but you have these folks who knew their languages well, and I say languages because Greek was not their their first, second language. They had you know, learned Latin and probably Greek in, in school and then coming to seminary, it's just a matter of moving from Attic to Koine. Um, so they had far greater like internalized grammar of how things work than what we have. 
Um, but the problem is, is, you know, they knew something when they saw it. So they knew this was contrast, not emphasis. Um, but they, didn't, they couldn't tell you why. They didn't have a framework for telling you why. And that makes it hard then for us reading the grammars to know, well, how can I go and do that same thing? Um, you have approaches that are um, statistically uh, oriented. So you have Dover and classical Greek and Porter and his students um, that have worked in, in Koine where by using statistical analysis, you can find the, the dominant patterns. Um, and in, in Porter's case, there's an, uh, an, an inverse relationship between frequency and prominence. So the less frequently something occurs, the more prominence there is to that patterning. And so I would refer you to um, a book review I did in RBL um, 2013. I'm not gonna to go into, into that anymore. Uh, but if you'd like to, to see a critique of uh, some of the challenges with that methodology, um, I'd refer you there. Um, when linguists ask me which approach should I use, my answer is it depends on what you're doing. Um, Dr. Porter's survey yesterday was really helpful um, in that each different linguistic theory was developed to address a different problem. And in most cases, it was a problem that the originators of the new theory felt like had been unaddressed by the other ones, left unaddressed. And oftentimes, they were coming to that, that problem with different presuppositions. And so it's not so much an issue of which is best or there is one that, that trumps all of them. It's not like uh, Lord of the Rings where you have the one ring that unites them all. Instead, it depends on what you're doing. And so if you're working in sociocultural uh, dialogue and analysis of conversations and things, SFL is an amazing, uh, it's your go-to uh, go approach. Um, in terms of information structure um, and some of the pragmatic things, uh, not just SFL's implementation within biblical studies, but more broadly, um, it's been critiqued um, by the fact that how much it's, it's based on English. Um, so let's go on to uh, information from how, uh, that we covered a bit yesterday, but probably it was a blur. So Halliday's theme ream, so that, that distinction theme being what's, what's presupposed or known, and ream, versus, which is uh, uh, newly asserted or unknown information, it's valid. The problem is, is that you find places where that doesn't hold true. Like in Greek, you'll find the pronouns sometimes are placed around and it doesn't fit. Or you'll find um, points of departure, those P1 elements that, that are clearly not themed, they're scene setting. Um, and then you actually have some, some clause types, both English, Greek, Hebrew, and in many of the world's languages that are only ream. There is no established information in it. They call it a, a, a thetic, thetic um, sentence focus. Again, it, it doesn't say that the, the, the ideas are that bad. They've, they were just early. Halliday originated these things, and they've been developed over the last 50 years. And so we should expect them to, uh, to develop. Um, and that's where uh, you have Dreyer's uh, insights into Greek being a VS language. You have Deke's template that's typologically informed, kind of a structural thing. But if you just worked with Deke alone, you couldn't account for some of these things that are cognitively driven by, based on how God's wired us to process language. But if I only dealt with things from a cognitive standpoint, say with relevance theory only, I wouldn't have the typological information that I need. And the bottom line is, Lambrecht 1994 kind of came in and, and did this combination of things. And now if you go and look at 
role in reference grammar or functional discourse grammar, relevance theory, they've basically carte blanche just picked up and plunked down Lambrecht's insight from 94, but it's taken like almost 20 years. So for those of us kind of working in the trenches and don't, that don't want to wait a couple decades, um, we do end up drawing upon different things that explain the data and, and let the others who are developing a theory of language and a full, full blown model then uh, do these other things. Um, actually, you should talk about natural information flow. Uh, natural information flow is this tendency to go from what's most known to what's least known. So, for instance, um, if I was to tell every every clause is a is a mixture of of new and old information. So, if I was to tell you something like, guess what? You're at a linguistics conference. You'd say, has he had too much coffee? Did he sleep last night? It had no information value at all because it's stuff you already know. It's presupposed. But if I told you something like, he fell down. And you're like, who? Where? You have no framework. So it's, it's that combination of presupposed information that provides the orientation of things and the newly asserted information that makes it informative that works together. And there's a tendency to move from what's most known to what's least known. So if we look at the fairy tale idea, once upon a time, there was, where there is a dummy subject, there was a prince. And then the prince lived in a castle. The castle had a moat. And the moat, there was a, a, you know, a horrible creature that lived there. Whatever, you know, whatever it is. But the, that's why with, with children's stories, you have this really pedantic unpacking of things one bit at a time. Um, we still do the same thing as, as adults. Um, but that's an expression of natural information flow. Um, there's also, when we read, we're building a mental representation of what we read. We're not storing the words. We may for a bit, um, but eventually it, it kind of becomes the gist of something, and then ev eventually it's kind of the, the general idea. You have less detail about it because you've stored it away in kind of a mental file cabinet in, in kind of less and less detail, and it takes reactivating that information where... Say, remember that guy I was telling you about last week? That's me instructing you to go pull that file folder out of the file, out of your long-term memory, and bring it back out on the table. Um, and I don't have to talk about the conference. I can just simply mention the speakers or something else that's associated with that, um, the thing at Southeastern. You know, that, that if, if you weren't at Southeastern, you'd probably remember, oh, yeah, that's right, I remember that. Um, that has to do with our mental representation of, of what we've stored. Um, and information structuring devices that we're going to be looking at today are, are basically the writer's instructions to us about how we should process and shape what they're trying to communicate. Like, I have a communication goal. I want to impart knowledge to you. So I've given some thought into not only how I'm structuring and ordering it, but how much information I can assume you have. Dr. Levinson had a different assumption yesterday about how much information, background information you had. Um, well, that wasn't funny, right? Um, so what I want to do is just show you how much you know about information structure. It's more than you think. Uh, Yoda in Star Wars actually uses Greek information structure quite well. 
But you'll notice that not every sentence is inverted in terms of the, the ordering of things. Uh, but you will find, and listen to the primary intonation, the stress on something. The most important information will receive primary sentence stress. So lost a, pl- lost a wayward planet you have. So what you have is the wayward planet is the most important information regardless of where it's located in the sentence. So what he's done is he's front that what was already most important into a position, I'm sorry, into a position of prominence. Uh, if we were a Hebrew, I could go that way, but go this way. Um, and it's, it's essentially like pounding the pulpit on that word to drive extra information. But then you have like the Padawan was right. You just have primary stress on right. Um, and then you have like gravity silhouette remains, but the star and the planets disappeared they have. So you have, you know, kind of default ordering on the one clause, but on the one that's like really driving home the point, then he'll use a marked order. So let's go ahead and listen to this. Pay attention to the intonation. Okay, notice that last line. He said, go to, you know, go to wherever it was and find the planet you will, right? We said that, well, I guess I said, uh, on behalf of Dr. Levinson, that uh, going back to Dreyer's ordering, that, that Greek is a VSVO, that the verb comes in the initial position unless there's some reason not to, right? So if fronting is how you add prominence, what do you do with the verb if, it, if it's its natural place? In Greek, you would put it at the end, which is according to natural information flow where you go from what's most known to what's least known. And so since you can't front a verb since it's already there, then and that's essentially what you have with, I mean, Lucas has done a great job linguistically with what Yoda says. So if you want to teach information structure or learn about it, go binge watch the movies and, and go on from there. Um, call it research. Uh, but what we have here is basically uh, fleshing out that, that expected order and the, the parenthetical elements are for what, what may or may not be present. And it's not to say this is, this is mainly looking at transitive clauses when everything is present, but the pronouns, uh, according to Levinson in his Discourse Features volume, has several different ordering principles. Principle number one 
is that the pronominal constituents are placed immediately after verb by default. So unless there's some reason not to. Um, ordering principle two is that um, core arguments like subjects and objects uh, will be before will occur before peripheral elements like prepositional phrases. And principle three predicts that propositional topics like subjects will precede the nonverbal uh, constituents in the predicate. So your objects, your prepositional phrases. So in those, those three put together, you'd expect pronoun first, then subject. Again, unless there's some other reason to do something else. Um, and so we see this in John 15, 15, where you have humas and avto, uh, both immediately following the verb. And notice that with avto, um, it's actually just the possessive of the noun phrase. So sometimes you'll read in the grammars, it talks about attraction, where, where the, 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 you know, it'll change the order of the noun phrase. It's not so much that it's moved in the clause as much as you've reordered the noun phrase, but it's, again, that moving from what's most known to what's least known. And so from Booth's standpoint, when you're reading this, you would basically drop your intonation, uketi legohumas, so you'd almost not stress it and just have that be your down spot um, and then go on with the rest of the clause, at least from a, from a reconstructed standpoint. And these may sound like hard and fast rules, but again, they're principles, just like we talked about at the beginning with textual criticism. Um, so another example of default ordering. Um, you have isaleilus and uh, tuto in verse 24, both of these are indirect objects, right? Um, so according to principle number three, they should be, or principle number two, they should be at the end of the clause, but they're trumped by principle one, which is this natural information flow. Um, and so you'll find that people will talk about, you know, natural information flow so much as the typology of the language allows. So the, again, language typology is another factor that fits in there. So this is the default ordering. So what about violating that order? And so Levinson talked about that in a paper yesterday, P1, P2. So P1 would be that contrast, you know, what the traditional grammarians called contrast. Um, it's established or accessible information that's been placed there to orient, generate a place where there's a switch of time, place, participants kind of action. It's to reorient you in some way and at a transition. But it also does a second thing. It's not just that it, it marks a transition, but it provides a cohesive link between those two. It's like a Velcro strip or bridge to, to join those two pieces together so that you have coherence and continuity within the discourse. So, as, so just as much as, as these, these divisions are kind of like snipping things apart linguistically, so you have your sections and your segments, the writer is just as quickly like paste, taping them back together or putting Velcro so you have the coherent flow of things to make it hang together. And Halliday's got some great, Halliday and Hassan are the, the go-to people in terms of um, learning more about cohesion. P2 then um, is, would be what traditional grammars would call uh, fronting something for the sake of emphasis. Um, doesn't mean that there can't be contrast. And again, that's where some of the, terms, the terminologies break down. 
but it's newly, it's newly asserted information. It's what was already most important regardless of its location in the clause, but by taking it from its default position at the end and moving it to a position of prominence, it, it adds more prominence to it. Um, and the only difference between P1 and P2, it's a theoretical construct for the sake of explain, explaining things. Uh, if you only have one constituent there and say, is it in P1 or P2? It's a, it's a good question. Let's look at it because it's ambiguous. It's just simply a pre-verbal position, but it's, it's to state that P1, based on natural information flow, even though they're in these, these marked positions, P1 precedes P2 following natural information flow. Okay, so well, I already, yeah, I, the presentation in my mind is kind of muddled, so we've actually covered this. Um, and the presupposed information is the basis for processing the new. So we talked about the, the fairy tale already. So questions are a great way of illustrating this, because I can have the same proposition. Bob gave me the book and place it in different contexts and have the most uh, salient information change. So who gave you the book? It presupposes someone gave you the book. Um, Bob gave me the book. Notice I'd naturally put primary intonation on Bob, or I'd probably more easily just say Bob did, because you drop what's not needed, because it's already so well established. If there was someone that said, oh, yeah, Sally gave you that book, I'd say, no, it was Bob who gave me the book. In, in, in English, we, since we can't really front something, we kind of can, but you have to put it in what's called an it-cleft construction. We, we have this requirement for there must be a subject in English. So that's where our it was Bob or there was, those are what the linguists would call a dummy subject. Um, so we're, we're fulfilling the requirement of the language. Um, but it was Bob who did this, not someone else. So you primarily use this in a context where you're correcting someone or changing uh, someone's ideas about something. But if we change the question, what did Bob give you? Now Bob is not new. It's not filling in a gap. Bob's presupposed. And um, what you have is Bob gave me a book. So that's what you're filling in, or just simply a book. Um, it was a book that Bob gave me, not a backpack. And if I was to say, um, what did Bob give you? Bob gave me the book. You'd be like, again, did you sleep last night? How much caffeine have you had? It's still intelligible, but the intonation is telling you something different than what you know in terms of presupposed. So see, you already know this stuff, right? Uh, let's go ahead and take a look at a passage. Um, I stuck with John. I, I wanted to try to just go through one long passage, but there are too many complexities, so I've tried to take just sections of verses that we're going to take a look at. Um, and so where you're switching. So here in, in beginning in verse 5, you have egoimiha ampulos, uh, verbless clause in the next, humista uh, klemata. So since you don't have a verb, you just stick in the, the topic, comment kind of ordering. Um, what's interesting, the, the, so the superscripting, sorry, this is out of the database, a screenshot. The, the superscripting stands for P1, represents P1, something that's been fronted, bolding, uh, represents P2. Um, so it's, it's new information that's been placed in a position of prominence. Take a look at it's, it's introducing this complex 
idea, a, a person, the one who remains in me and I in him. Uh, if, if I, if I want to introduce something that's too complicated, I can use a, a casus pendens or a left dislocation to introduce that information. We don't really do that in English, and that's why uh, Wallace in his grammar talks about left dislocations as being kind of adolescent speech. Well, it, it kind of is adolescent because the kids haven't learned that we don't really do that in English. What they, uh, you know, the, this kid on the playground, well, he, uh, you know, the, the, well, the well is the little spacer to tell me I'm, I'm entering the main clause, and the he is the resumption, the reference back to this thing I activated outside. More naturally in conversational English, um, I think it would be British English as well, we'd use a rhetorical question. You know the guy on the playground? Well, he... Uh, so from a translation standpoint, we may be better off with this left dislocations to use a rhetorical question because um, it's all about activating the information, telling you to go back and pull out this file folder or create one based on it being something you could like already know from your world experience. And that allows him to move more quickly. Um, this one will bear much fruit. Um, Notice in the next clause, in the Hati clause, you have horisemu udunuste poin udin. Prepositional phrases normally come at the end of the clause, right? And had and uh, had that had uh, been at the end of the clause, it would have sounded like newly asserted information. P one is more associated with presupposed information, right? So had this been. Uh, you're unable to do anything apart from me, that would make it sound like this is about apart from me versus being with me. Instead, since it's P1, it's orienting you to the main clause that follows, which is without me, you can't do anything. And notice how, again, my primary stress is on the anything, not the apart from me. So this is less about a switching and more about making sure that we've narrowed down the scope of the new information. Uh, the conditional clause, uh, the C, that's what CD stands for. So don't worry about the abbreviations. Superscripting means P1. Um, that if, if anyone does not remain in me, and that could introduce a whole large section of text in Orient, the whole large section of text, which is what you find in, in the clauses that follow. Um, so it can kind of mark the beginning of something, but it won't tell you how far it goes. And then uh, notice that you basically just have a quick reporting of, you know, they'll be thrown out as a branch, they'll be dried up and gathered them and into the fire thrown. Um, and they're burned. So you basically just, the, the P1 is providing that orientation, nothing super uh, complex about that. Um, sometimes though, you will find uh, pronouns are normally the most presupposed information, right? Because they're basically a, a semantically empty bucket that you can fill up with generally information from the preceding context. Um, in Greek and in English, Pronouns can be used, Wallace would call this a proleptic demonstrative. 
So it's a forward pointing reference. And so in the database, they're marked up with little arrows and they point to the thing that has the little target on it, the forward pointing reference and target. Um, it's a rhetorical device, just like I would say, here's the deal. This is my final offer. Uh, how much would you expect to, you know, the, the, all of these kinds of, they're all legitimately associated with sales and things, but um, it's just simply a way of drawing attention to something, kind of misusing a pronoun. Instead of referring back to something, you refer ahead. And even though that's technically, if you look at pronouns and say, oh, they're highly established. Well, not when they're cataphoric, not when they're forward pointing. In this, uh, is my father glorified? And so you're waiting to find out what this is, and that the, the henna clause, then you've got a compound um, that you would bear much, that much fruit you would bear, uh, and they prove to be my disciples. Um, next clause, you've, in verse 9, you've got a P1 then introducing a comparison. So, as the fathers loved me, so with comparisons, we're not sure. You generally have to have at least one part of continuity and one part of difference to, to have that come about. You have uh, kago, which is the switching from the father to Jesus as the subject. We have agapesa, uh, agapesa, agapesa as the verb. So we've kept the same verb, but instead it's lo- I love, you know, I you love in essence. Um, so because that's the only new information. You know, we have the same verb, uh, switch the subject, and so um, then you have the encouragement to remain in my love. I think we're going to skip this example just for sake of time to keep moving. Uh, but you can, the idea, or is this one I really want to do? Yeah, we'll just do verse 19, okay? Uh, this, this is to illustrate how you really need to re- look at things. You, you can't study information structure at the zoo. You can't pull passages or pull a verse out of context and just look at it in isolation and expect to understand things. It's what's presupposed and what's newly asserted changes with every word you read. It's later now. If you've read something, it's no longer new. It's now presupposed. And so it inverts everything, but we are so used to doing that, it's not a problem. So if we look at, um, if the world you hates, know that me first, you know, um, hated. And so then you come down into 19, developing this proposition about hating in the world and, and how that relates then to Jesus. Um, this emphasis then in verse 19 in the, in the conditional clause is about a foil. It's setting up something. It's not so much that it's the most important propos- uh, information in the entire clause. It's a foil. It's, it's a setup for what he's talking about. If out of the world you are, the world its own would have loved. Um, but you have another disloca- left dislocation here. And this is significant because if... You can only pound the pulpit, in essence, you can only emphasize a very finite number of words. Um, if I was to have this long expression like, um, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you, you, know, you, you, can't, you can't maintain the intonation. Now, some pastors, I've heard it done, <laughs> but 
doesn't mean it's a good thing. Um, instead, what you have is a left dislocation is introducing something outside the main clause so that then you have this very concise thing so you can pound the pulpit. The atuto. This is why they hate you. Which goes back up to verse 18 because it's talked about the hate. You're going to be hated, but not why. And 19 is filling in that gap. Dependent adverbials. This is fascinating to me. So hopefully it won't put you to sleep. Um, Randall Booth is in the back. We had a, like a running skirmish. Con Campbell was involved in a while. It was uh, like over three continents. Uh, months. Pitched battle. Um, why do writers use adverbial constituents? was the topic of the battle. Um, so this is my position, kind of after the dust had settled, um, and I think we've kind of come to a consensus about this. When I choose to use, a, to, to, make, to use a participle or some kind of dependent form, in many cases, not saying in every case, but in many cases, it could have just as easily been a finite independent clause, right? So I've chosen not to do that. And by choosing not to, to make it a, an independent, co-equal partner with the main clause, uh, you could call it like a grammatical group hug. Um, I've chosen to, to make this complex proposition instead of a series of independent propositions. A necessary consequence of that is I need to anoint one of them as king over the rest. Um, that's the main clause. That ends up being the big idea, and a necessary consequence of that is these other adverbial propositions then relate, they, they, they uh, describe or modify then that main clause. Again, nothing, um, nothing significant about that. But another uh, kind of a secondary implication of that is those dependent clauses as a result of the, the raising up of the one, the others are demoted to some extent. Uh, they're backgrounded, um, especially when they precede the main clause. We'll take a look at some examples of that. So in this, we're introducing another kind of concept. The grayed out text, the grayscale, are the adverbial, the preverbal, preverbal, ah, sorry, the pre, yeah, preverbal or clause initial adverbial participles. Um, I said the, the effect is backgrounding. We were trying to represent that in the database. Um, so what you have is, again, the, a, a temporal orientation, the P1 before, uh, uh, before the Feast of Passover, and then you have Jesus knowing something, and then a second action of him loving his own um, in the world. What you end up doing is, I, I think it's reasonable to expect that a, the original audience would, would have been waiting for that main clause, because the participles are not it. And, and as much as we may say that there are... Uh, what would you call them, an, an indicative, uh, indicatival participle? Or I, you know, it's one of those hyphenated words in the traditional grammar is to basically you want, or an independent adverbial participle, where we want it to be its own clause, but that's neglecting the, the choice that the writers made to, to link things together. And what you have then, uh, and even in the, the final participial clause with uh, agapesas, is a repetition then, um, 
we already knew most of what that, that main proposition is, but instead what you have is the duration or the extent to which he loved them, which is to the end he did it. Um, another example of, of the same, no, I guess not. Uh, so those that are pre, that are clause initial tend to be pragmatically presupposed, so they're, they're P1-ish. They're not technically uh, that kind of orienter, but they function that way, and so I just treat them as such. They provide thematic grounding for what follows, and they tend to have a very wide semantic scope, meaning they could very easily, they could much more easily be independent propositions compared to the participles that follow. Um, they don't have that close connection. Um, and so, again, another long series of adverbial clauses that then, I, to some extent, are then delaying the main proposition, but they're also doing the scene setting. So it's not that it's one or the other, but sometimes you'll have really long, like the woman with the flow of blood in Mark, I think, has seven participial clauses describing her condition. And, like, and then finally, you come down to one verb, at last, like when you're gasping, where's the main verb? <laughs> she touches him. Only verb, short clause, and then he says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, who hasn't? You're in a crowd, you know? That is the key verb. It's repeated, and it's not emphasized because of the repetition, but it's been isolated by how it was set up, that this is about this thing that she's done. And what does he say at the end? Your faith has healed you, not the touch. Hmm, and it's in a perfect. Uh, but we digress. Okay, adverbial modifiers and typology. So we're, now we're looking at the, the final adverbials. Um, it's typically newly asserted information. It elaborates, so it's got a, a much tighter semantic connection to the main clause. And so because of that, it's got a much more local scope. And that's why you'll find, like, if you have an imperatival verb or a hortatory of some kind, hortatory subjunctive, um, and participles or infinitives follow, you tend to see it elaborating and spelling out in more detail. What does that look like in practice is, is kind of how I explain that to students. Um, there are not many of these, these clause final adverbial participles in John. Um, a good example would be, uh, I mean, you'll find them in the Paulines, you'll find them elsewhere, but I wanted to just stay in John. But you have uh, rowing, which is, again, not that semantically connected to seeing, obviously, because it's something that's at the preverbal slot in, in P1, is, is orienting, it's presupposed information, or at least accessible, it's casting, as, casting it as though it's presupposed. But then you have Jesus, uh, they see Jesus, and then you have a couple participles describing. He's walking, and he's coming near the boat. Um... Ignore that. Uh, what, okay, last, last kind of phenomena to look at. Um, not all adverbial modifiers are considered the same. Uh, they're not all created equally. So from a distributional standpoint, and this was a study looking at 40 different Indo-European languages as well as some from, from outside, so there was typo uh, typological diversity. Um, what he found was Conditional clauses almost nearly always were clause initial. Temporal were kind of split, but primarily at the beginning. 
causal were kind of split, but typically afterwards, where result and purpose were nearly always at the end. And that has to do with, in, in each one, since, since it, it accomplishes different things. So, for instance, temporal clauses could be part of, or temporal adverbs could be part of the new information, but they can also be orienting. But if I have a conditional clause and place it at the end, because it affects the truth conditionality of the main clause, and if, if I place it at the end, it sounds like a gotcha. Like I've just given you something and I'm pulling it back. Um, and you'll find examples of that in, in the New Testament. Um, so one, uh, and then same thing with reason results. Typically, the reason for something, the purpose for something, is part of the newly asserted information. So one of the ways of, of showing that it's, it's not part of that, that it is to have it be that orienting thing. So there's a number of different motivations for uh, moving things. The conclusion. Uh, the complexities of language require a number of different approaches. So I, I could be a purist and I could simply use Simon Deke's typological model, but there's data I can't account for. Um, I know that because uh, Helma Deke's uh, dissertation has, has run into problems with the handling of the, the natural information flow and the pronouns. Um, the status of the information is, is determined. Um, that's a typo. Uh, cannot be determined apart from context. Cannot be determined apart from context. Wow. Uh, right. Um, methodologies and theories continue to develop. Uh, Lambrecht was published in 94. It's just now beginning to be adopted in, in like I said, in, in kind of the mainline approaches with role and reference grammar. Uh, uh, there was a split in the SFL school, and I think Robin Fawcett is leaning more toward Lambrecht because of the problems with, with Halliday not being able to account for things outside of English. But there's still a problem in, as it's being worked out within the methodology. Um, and finally, analyzing information structure needs to be done within that larger constellation. We looked at the forward-pointing reference and target. You have all kinds of other different kind of constraints. So. If, and that's one of the challenges with doctoral studies is that it tends to just look at one narrow thing because that's how doctoral topics work. But oftentimes, it's like it's the equivalent of putting it in a zoo and not seeing it out on the savanna in its native habitat when you can really account for the other things. Um, but uh, it is challenging. So there are actually two databases. If you go to Twitter, like I said, I, I retweeted a, a bundle that includes the database, the discourse grammar, uh, the Festschrift for Levinson and then the, the Greek Verb Revisited volume. Levinson also has uh, his own analysis <coughs> that, again, we should be on the same page, but his is organized more for, for Bible translators. And if you just do a Google search on Stephen Levinson uh, discourse for translation, you, you should be able to find his, his page. And I'm out of time and overtime. So thank you very much.